So happy Thanksgiving, everyone. We uh, generally take this Sunday every year to honor all of our children, those present and those far away, those who were raised in this church or others who have come back to worship with us during this holiday week. Now, it's a sad fact that 18 to 35-year-olds, that elusive young adult age range, continues to be the least represented in our congregations, association-wide, and our church may be a little better than most, but still feels less than representative of our overall society than it might. But make no mistake, our Unitarian Universalist history is full of young adult leadership. Indeed, it's dependent upon it. Those between the ages of 18 and 35 have always been at the forefront of our movement. 19th century Unitarian minister Theodore Parker was 31 years old when he preached what would be probably the most influential sermon of the 19th century entitled The Permanent and Transient in Christianity, where, I love this, he famously argued, if what Jesus said were true, it would be true whether or not Jesus said it. Right? This opened the door to the historical critical method of biblical scholarship and an unprecedented advocacy for the use of reason in settling religious claims. Unitarian minister Ralph Waldo Emerson was 35 when he preached his famous Divinity School address, in fact, one of the last sermons he actually preached. And Unitarian martyr Michael Servetus would be burned at the stake for a heretical book he wrote at just 19 years old. Our young adults even helped found the Unitarian Universalist Association by joining the Unitarian and the Universalist Young People's Organizations decades, decades before the adult churches merged. Without the collaboration between the Unitarian Young People's Religious Union and the Universalist Young People's Christian Union into the famous and much easier to say, thankfully, Liberal Religious Youth, or LRY, the Unitarian Universalist Association may not have come to be. And if it did, merger of the faiths would have taken much, much longer than it did. And as I'd like to remind some of my institutional opponents who have expressed disinterest uh, in young adult programming and investing in campus ministry and things that appeal to young adults, I'd like to remind them that the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth himself all happened between the ages of 30 and 33, squarely within our young adult age range. Now, having studied philosophy as a young adult myself, and admittedly I am not an existentialist, but I am of course prone to this line of thinking on occasion, and even more so when I was in the midst of young adult angst. Now, one of the tenets of the philosophy of existentialism is that we are all unfinished. We are all in the act of becoming. We are a sum of our experiences and do not reach our essence until our very last breath. Now, 
Again, not an existentialist myself, but I find this an apt metaphor for us as universalists, who believe we are all capable of achieving greatness despite past failures, that we all have potential to live into love, and that we are always learning. For us today, the joy is multiplied as we celebrate our own children who have grown up, and we are so proud of them, having truly grown into the love and greatness we know and we saw in them all along. We know that in contemporary America, the decade or so after high school is one of the most difficult and trying in a person's life. Filled with major life transitions, great failures and great triumphs, the finding and losing of love, bearing and raising children, struggling with issues of sexual and gender identity, completing higher education or jumping into an insecure job market, establishing independence and moving regularly. The young adult years can be everything from exciting and wonderful to devastating. This is sadly the time that many mental illnesses can come to the surface, changing forever the outlook and quality of life of our young people and make this age the most susceptible to risk-taking behavior and suicide. This is a time that drugs and alcohol, often hard to procure as a teen, become alarmingly available, and issues of addiction emerge more often than in, in any other time of life. Americans in their 20s and early 30s are also more sexually active than any other group, with all of the expected joys and consequences that that entails. It's also true that despite these transitions and trials, and despite the problems we as a faith have sustained in retaining our young people, young adults today are the most you-you of any generation yet. In overwhelming numbers, Generation Y and the millennial generations are the most accepting, of interracial relationships, interfaith relationships, same-sex marriage and human rights, the gender continuum, and are the most active in volunteerism and political advocacy than any living generation. They are most often spiritual but not religious, exploring different spiritual outlets and engaging in interfaith dialogue with others different than themselves. So not only do we have a religious obligation to support our young folks who are out in the world, we ourselves can only benefit from their continued contributions to our community and to the greater Unitarian Universalist movement. But we have a problem. We have a big problem, in fact. It is the problem that we have been raising our children in a church that is different from our own. You see, when you're praised you, you, like I was, you are taught that this religion is alive, always changing and growing as we change and grow. We are not only observers or followers of Unitarian Universalism, we are active participants in its constant recreation. Now this is wonderful because it allows us the opportunity to explore the worlds of wisdom and glean for ourselves 
the value of ritual and purpose, and create our own along the way. Some of my most magical moments to this day in my life happened as a peer leader of high school retreat worships, singing to the spirits under the stars around a campfire with a bunch of teenagers, finally empowered to be fully themselves. But our adult congregations are often very different. They follow a rigid worship structure and seemingly immovable opinion on evolving issues. And why is this exactly? Well, I believe it has something to do with the fact our adult, who our adult members are. Our adult members, more often than not, in this congregation included, are converts from other religious traditions or converts from no religious background at all. They come to us because they like who we are now, saying, finally, we found some place that will accept us as we are. And that's all well and good until some young Unitarian Universalist comes along and says, we should change this, or we should learn about that, or I and my friends would be more comfortable here if. Now, adult UUs often shut this down, and understandably so. Again, we finally found a place where we're comfortable, and these kids are wanting us to change. And a really good example of this tension is our current work trying to learn more about transgender and gender non-binary folks, so that we might become more welcoming of people who identify this way. And there may be some among us who fought hard for things like gay marriage, before that, recognition of the LGBT community's rights in general, and might be thinking, we finally found a church that accepts us for who we are, and now they want us to change. They want us to change the way we thought about these issues for decades. And it sounds a bit paradoxical, right? We accept you as you are, but we want you to change. But it's true. We are all called to a higher standard than we often live up to. All of us, myself included, we fail constantly. We embarrass ourselves regularly. We act in cowardice. We think selfishly. We dig into long-held beliefs out of fear that we might change too much if we are to re-examine them. So it takes a place like this church, where we are accepted as full human beings and encouraged, supported, and loved through our learnings for us to become those slightly better versions of ourselves we so desperately want to become. It takes a place like this church and people like those right here for us to grow into who we are meant to be. And it takes more than just sitting next to these fine people. It takes dialogue. It takes trust and interchange. It takes relationship. We here at Bradford are already taking steps to remedy some of these disconnects that are all too common in our churches by bringing our religious seekers of all ages together in worship every week. Hopefully, we're all getting used to each other's presence here in the sanctuary and getting to know one another just a little bit better. 
And so in honor of homecoming, of the wisdom of our seniors, and the imagination and energy of our newest, newest religious seekers, we'll be engaging in a little relationship building this morning. We'll be playing one of my favorite games. It's called People Bingo. Now, I invite everyone who's under the age of 40 and anyone older than the age of 40 who would like to to take out your insert in your order of service and run the solicited people bingo. Get up out of your seat. You will be looking to find a different person that fits each of these categories. And when you find someone who fits these descriptions, please ask them to sign your card or write their name legibly. Now, the first person, listen to this, the first person to fill out the card correctly will get a Bradford UU t-shirt of their design choice on me. We're going to play this until we have a winner, everyone. So please write legibly and go to it. Thank you all. Hopefully that was fun and we all learned a little bit about each other. Did anybody learn something about someone else at this, uh, this service? Fantastic. May we all be grounded in our experiences, feel accepted as the whole beings we are, and be constantly moved into simply becoming better. May it be so. Let's see and honor. Thank you everyone who participated in Introverts. I hope you found a way to connect with others around you. We love you too. Well, because we're highlighting young people, I'm going to highlight someone's younger years. So I read to you from some of Ernestine Rose's quotes this morning. And I want to tell you about the early part of her life. She was born in Congress, Poland as Ernestine Louise Potoska. And while many of the early, it's really important, the early women's rights advocates began their justice work speaking out against slavery in America, Ernestine Rose began by becoming disenchanted with the religious rule in her very own home. Many of our Jewish Friends and neighbors hold her as a hero even today for being a religion Meshuganah rights mensch. When she was five years old, five, hear that kids? And she questioned her father about why his God would ask him to participate in painful fasts. He told her women shouldn't question religion nor authority, and that women and girls had no business speaking for themselves. She says, I became a rebel at the age of five. Her father was a wealthy rabbi, but his wealth came from his wife, Ernestine's mom. Ernestine began to question the justice of a God which exacts such hardships on people. She lived, she lived in a very poor neighborhood. She didn't see much good around her and she questioned the hardships that she lived amongst. As she grew up, she began questioning her father about religion more, and he told her, a young girl does not want to understand the object of her creed, but to accept and believe it. 
Ernestine subsequently said she dated her loss of faith, as well as the germ of her subsequent women's rights principles from that conversation with her father. This questioning set the tone for the rest of her life, where she wanted to be ruled by no one but herself. Ernestine's mistrust of illogical rules and laws was only further confirmed when her mother died when Ernestine was just barely 16 years old. She, her mother left Ernestine with an inheritance that she could not keep for the simple fact that she was a woman. Her father arranged for Ernestine to be married to someone she didn't know, was decades older than her, and ultimately did not care for either. After begging him to stop the arrangement, he told Ernestine that is just how families keep their wealth. He thought she was silly to want to marry or love, and did not understand the importance the function of marriage had in society, nor the imperative to keep her wealth in the family. Now, Ernestine did something completely unheard of. She traveled in very harsh weather, through storms, on foot and by stagecoach to a secular court. And in those horrible conditions, she argued on her own behalf. The court was so surprised to have this young lady show up that they ruled in her favor. She indeed did not have to marry the man her father selected. And she did not have to give her fortune to that man. She wanted to travel instead across the world, find true love, and be independent. Fortunately, the global rise of train travel coincided with her dreams. <coughs> Women traveling alone, though, was very unusual at that time. While the secular court ruled that Ernestine could keep her inheritance, upon returning home, she discovered her father had remarried a girl from her class, the same age as Ernestine. Her home and private environment proved trying. <laughs> so she decided to leave her father most of her money and move to Berlin. In Germany, she discovered there were anti-Semitism laws requiring all Jews to have a sponsor. Seeing this as untenable because Ernestine didn't know anyone, what do you think she did? She appealed to the king. <laughs> Why indeed, she asked to have a meeting with the king, and he was so blown away by this young woman who had the audacity to ask to meet with him that he granted her permission to meet with him. And as well, he said that she could stay without um, a sponsor in Germany. He just loved the tenacity of her logical arguments. Having left her fortune to her father, Ernestine needed to make money for survival and to feed her travel habit. Now, home of this era, all the homes smelled very foul. There was, no, there was no municipal garbage. There wasn't plumbing in all of the homes. Cooking odors and lack of sanitary conditions made homes smell disgusting. Ernestine had an answer for this. She invented perfumed shelf lining paper and special scented papers to be burned in metal incense containers. This funded her travel throughout Europe. And once she was traveling in England, and sadly, 
Her ship sunk, and Ernestine almost died. She lost everything she had. Penniless, she managed to resurrect her perfume paper company. Shortly thereafter, now think about how old she is. She's in her very early 20s by this point. She's barely 20 when this is happening. Ernestine became exposed to Owenism. She was so taken by the idea of Owenism and the founder that she started lecturing on the radical ideas like free education for all, women's rights to have their own name and keep their property, women's rights to have bank accounts, or choose who they would marry. She also saw all races as equal. The founder of this Owenism was Robert Owen. He had been a workers' rights advocate at his own factory. And he even ran his factory as though it was one of the first unions. He helped found the Association for All Classes and All Nations in 1835. And it functioned like a trade union or business welfare society, aiming to bring together all classes, all races, all sexes and nations, thinking that they all should be treated equally. This association aimed to bring the salvation of mankind by entirely peaceful means. In this moment, Ernestine met her future husband, William Rose, whom she dearly loved. In fact, their love affair was talked about throughout her entire life and even upon her death about how taken each of them were with each other. He loved her success at lecturing. And he was a Christian silversmith, but he was most dedicated to the same causes as her. They belonged to the Owenism Society Lecture Club. They married, and it became a civil contract between two equals, they told everyone. In 1836, Ernestine and William moved to the United States, and the couple opened a perfumery and jewelry shop in their Manhattan home. Ernestine, like many women's early, many early women's rights advocates, was firmly against slavery. Women's activism and abolition were so closely linked that the two groups often held their conventions alongside one another, enabling members to attend both conventions. Now, I want to pause and have you think about how we used to really be into dividing up what issues were our causes. Am I an environmentalist? Am I an LGBT rights advocate? And now we're coming to a time where we talk about the need for intersectionality and how all of these issues are related, right? Ernestine was preaching this in 1835. She was a force aiming to govern herself, she said, and her own thoughts in the world at a time when most women were not expected to even think. She didn't focus on just one issue, but saw humanity and their ability to rule themselves as interlude. For her, slavery, issues of women, issues of children, religious freedoms, they were all intertwined. Ernestine understood that human rights issues are dependent upon one another. One could not expect our world to be well-functioning if half the race, half the genders, and all of humanity were ruled by anything other than logic. She could find no science nor reason to justify the oppression of women, the enslavement of humans, or the substituting of religion for logic and rule of the people.
Controlling others from outside authority was antithetical to her way of thinking. As an early humanist, she provides lessons we can look to even today. And what I'm sharing with you today is most of what she was famous for only before 30. She went on to have an astonishing life after that. But today is not the day we're thinking of that. We're holding up our young people and young examples of what we can accomplish and what we should respect. Her life is an exciting tale, and I'm lifting up those younger years to inspire us to think about what we can do and to fuse mad respect into our youth who want to do things differently. And I call on you today to put some earnesting fire into your soul and dedicate yourself to the equality of all genders and races. Okay, we have one more thing to do. I'm going to invite all of our people, all of our young people, we'll say everyone under the age of 40, to rise for this. This is a little litany that we do to um, affirm our commitment to our Unitarian Universalist Center, where we're the seekers of all ages. We hope to serve and grow lifelong Unitarian Universalists. We respect the many transitions in education, career, partnership, parenting, and establishing independence in a young person's life. place to find truth and meaning together. Yeah. We know that this 